Many of us have taken American history classes throughout our educational career, K through 12 and college. But how many of us know about the life and legacy of Alonso Esperales? Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on black and brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. Today, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Cynthia Orozco, Professor of History at Eastern New Mexico University, Ruidoso, and author of several award-winning books. I tell you, it is so inspiring to witness the publication of this important book about this significant American leader. We need more biographies about Latinos and Latinas. I hope you're inspired by my conversation with Dr. Orozco about the life and legacy of Alonso Esperales. See show notes for more information about Dr. Cynthia Orozco and how to purchase this important book. Please subscribe to the Empowerment Zone podcast. And all as always, please give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Your support will ensure that we continue our journey in empowerment and impact. Today, we have Dr. Cynthia Orozco with us today on the Empowerment Zone. And as you all know, we're all about empowerment and impact here. And Dr. Cynthia Orozco is a historian and uh, she's a good friend of mine and busy, busy, busy writing that history. And she is author of uh, the book, Pioneer of Mexican-American Civil Rights, Alonso S. Perales. And um, it's really great to have her here today to talk about Alonso Perales because um, as many of you readers out there know, there are very few biographies and autobiographies about um, people of Mexican-American descent, people of Latino, Latina uh, descent. And it's important that we have these books out there to tell our story. Right, we we need writers who who tell the story of African Americans and Latino Latina Americans, so that we can learn uh, about the greatness that we have in our communities. And one of the reasons I believe there's so few uh, biographies and autobiographies about uh, people of Latino Latina descent is because. Um, you know, we just recently started producing scholars in the um, Latino community. When you look at the rise of the ethnic studies movements in the 1960s, that's when we really started having um, uh, universities produce historians who studied uh, Mexican-American, Latino, uh, Latina history. And so it's great to have one of the pioneers um, in this effort. Uh, I know at one point in time when I was in graduate school, it was less than 15 uh, uh, Latinas who had PhDs in history. 
uh, and I was in, in graduate school in the 90s. I don't know what the number is, but it's still a very small number. And so now uh, we have these scholars out here who are doing some great work. And I'm so happy to talk about Alonso Perales, but even more excited about talking to my co colleague, Dr. Cynthia Rosco. Hi, uh, Cynthia. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone. Good morning, Ramona. Uh, good morning, Dr. Houston. Uh, thanks for having me this morning. I'm really uh, happy that you would join me on the Empowerment Zone for the second time. Uh, you have written uh, several books, um, No Mexicans, Women or Dogs Allowed, The Rise of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement, which was the University of Texas's press best-selling academic book in 2010 to 2020. And you did speak to us in uh, our uh, one of our previous seasons of the Empowerment Zone about your book, Agent of Change, Adela Sloss Vento, Mexican-American Civil Rights Activist and Texas Feminist, which was the winner of the Liz Carpenter Award for Best uh, Book in Texas Women History uh, in uh, 2020. And you've also co you're also co-editor of the Mexican Americans in Texas uh, book. So you've been quite busy over the last few years. So tell us, uh, before we get to talking about Alonso Perales and your book, uh, can you tell us how did you end up uh, becoming a scholar in uh, American history and more specifically in Mexican American uh, history? Uh, yes, um, I first attended Southwest Texas State University in San Marcos, um, but I was not interested in the history that was presented to me at the time. However, when I attended the University of Texas at Austin, I took my first Chicano history class and we had to write a 20 page paper uh, uh, doing original research. And that's how I got connected to uh, Chicano or Mexican-American history. So since 1978, as a sophomore, I have been conducting original research. And actually, the topic of this book, uh, Alonso Esperales, uh, believe it or not, I used his papers uh, in his widow's home way back around 1979. So I was introduced to him very early on. So... Uh... Tell us, why did you choose uh, to write about Alonso Esperales specifically, even though you may have been introduced to him, to him uh, and his work in 1979? Uh, years later, what made you focus on him as a person to study and write a book on versus the many other uh, Mexican-American leaders during his era? Uh, well, I was actually commissioned by Arctic Publico Press out of Houston to complete a biography on him. Uh, another scholar had been uh, selected, Dr. Francisco Rosales, uh, who had worked on a biography for about seven years, but he passed. And so then I was asked to complete the work. Uh, and uh, really, uh, even before Rosales had been selected, I was the national expert on Perales. I had used his materials uh, also for a senior honors thesis. And my dissertation and my book, No Mexicans Allowed, relied heavily on the Perales collection. So uh, Perales was also somebody that uh, I had written about. Uh, we had in 
2009, the Perales collection finally came to the University of Houston. Perales had died in 1960. So all those years had gone by where the Perales papers were in the private hands of the family. Uh, once the papers got to the University of Houston, there was a Perales conference organized by Arte Publico Press. And I wrote a paper on Perales in the 1930s. Uh, Francisco Rosales also contributed. And then a book was published, uh, by, edited by uh, the scholar and attorney, Michael Olivas. So I already had a long history of working uh, on the history of Perales. So tell us about uh, Alonso Perales. What makes him such a significant um, person in not only Mexican-American history and Texas history, but American history? Uh, yes, I would actually argue that Alonso Perales was the most significant Latino of the 20th century. And I do so primarily because he was the principal founder of the LULAC organization. LULAC stands for League of United Latin American Citizens, which was founded in 1929 in Corpus Christi, but today is a major national Latino civil rights organization in the United States and Puerto Rico. So for that fact alone, uh, and the uh, extensive uh, work that LULAC has done across the nation in so many places and in so many lawsuits, that is why uh, Perales, I would argue, is the most significant. And I would even say that he is the closest thing that we would have had to a, a Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, Perales was active uh, as, uh, first of all, as the founder of LULAC, but even before that, he, this is a young man born in Alice, Texas in 1898. Uh, his father's a shoemaker, his mother's a homemaker, but he loses his parents and a brother before age 10. And so he ends up growing up with a family uh, in Alice, Texas, the Trevino family, completes an eighth grade education then moves on to San Antonio, attends a business school there where he learned white collar uh, business skills, is drafted into World War I, but does not see action, then goes to Washington, D.C. to work with the Department of Commerce, finishes high school, continues his studies in college, and then gets a law degree and returns to Texas in the mid-20s and goes on to establish LULAC in 1929. However, even before he establishes LULAC in 1929, he serves as a U.S. diplomat and worked in 13 different missions for the United States government in the Caribbean, in Mexico, Central America, and in Latin America, while he, he himself is in his 20s. Moreover, beginning in 1919, he begins his work as a writer, writing op-ed pieces and letters to the editor. So from uh, beginning in 1919, all the way to his death in 1960, he is writing for newspapers and even served as a columnist for the La Prensa newspaper of San Antonio, which was the most important uh, Spanish language newspaper in Texas from around 1930 to the 60s. 
He also served as a columnist for La Voz Católica, the Catholic Voice, um, primarily in the 1950s, uh, because he was a, uh, a good Catholic. Uh, so he was uh, a founder of LULAC and a major civil rights activist. He was an attorney addressing many important cases. He was a public intellectual, and he also wrote two books. He wrote a book called In Defense of the Mirasa, In Defense of My People, and also another book called Are We Good Neighbors? So he did all of that. And really, uh, especially for San Antonio, he is the most important mover and shaker in Mexican-American civil rights in San Antonio and actually throughout Texas. You know, when you look at the history of uh, Mexican-American activists and prominent individuals, it's amazing that many of them come through San Antonio at some point in time in their uh, development and evolution. So what was it about uh, Alonso Esperales that made him such a an impactful leader in your opinion? Well, uh, a lot of things. First of all, uh, most of the Mexican or Mexican-American community uh, cannot speak English. So number one, he's bilingual. Number two, he has a college education, which is extremely, extremely unusual at the time. Uh, he is a smart, ambitious, caring man. Uh, he also was 6'1", so he would have commanded stature. Uh, he was a great orator and effective writer, and he was a brave man. Uh, again, remember in the 1920s, we have a resurgence of the KKK. We still have some lynching against in the Mexican community as well as the black community. And it's a very difficult time because it is the era of Jim Crow or Juan Crow. And that is his mission. His mission is to attack the, the uh, disempowerment of the Mexican descent community. Uh, really, he is the formative leader of what we now call the Mexican American Civil Rights Movement. Yes, and a lot of people don't recognize uh, or don't know that Texas segregated both the African-American and Mexican-American communities. So it, uh, the Texas system had actually a tri-racial system and uh, many uh, Mex people of Mexican-American descent were desegregated against, as you explained, we have uh, Juan Crow uh, and Jim Crow. And so a lot of people present day don't know that many uh, people of Latino descent in Texas suffered, suffered many of the similar um, atrocities that the African-American community suffered, including lynchings. And here you have, you put as you put him in his historical context and see the difficulty and the bravery it takes to um, to really address issues within uh, the uh, Latino community, the Mexican-American community, you see how Alonso Perales is really one of those significant leaders of that of, of his era. So um, as you uh, wrote this book, I'm really curious as a historian, what did you find out about Alonso Esperales that really was 
something that really made a significant impact on you, you know, something new, something that you discovered about his life that you didn't know previously, having been introduced to uh, to him as uh, so, so early in your uh, professional career? Um, well, I didn't really know how active he was. And so I would say that this is a man who every single day of his life was writing letters, was was talk, lobbying politicians, was preparing legislation, was writing congressional testimony, uh, was doing pro bono work for uh, the poor Mexican descent community. So he was major, major activist. But really the most important thing that I discovered about him was a case that he worked on. And he volunteered to work on a case for a woman named Rachel Gonzalez. And Rachel Gonzalez uh, had killed uh, her lover who apparently was a married man and did not tell her that he was married. Uh, she told him, I'm gonna kill you. And she actually did kill him. Alonso Perales volunteered to work on that case. And he actually, uh, I think it was very interesting that he was very much a Catholic and a Christian, uh, but he believed that she was wrong. And I think he saw her as someone who had been dishonored according to the, the Catholic or Christian moral authority of the time. Uh, but also as somebody who would have uh, no father and, and no money to raise that child. So the bottom line is that uh, Rachel Gonzalez got off for murder. And in Perales's letter, one that he writes, J.T. Canales, J.T. Canales being uh, the first Latino in Texas to receive a law degree in 1898 University of Michigan. He writes Canales and calls it a women's rights case. Uh, to me, that was quite striking. That That's really the most memorable thing that I recall about Alonso Perales. Uh, but uh, Perales uh, uh, was so active uh, and he was active from 1919 all the way to 1960. Uh, you mentioned the importance of San Antonio. San Antonio would not have transformed the way that it did had it not been for Perales, because it is really the LULAC that makes major changes there. Perales also mentored people like Gus Garcia, who's uh, another prominent attorney. He mentored Carlos Cadena, another attorney. He mentored Henry B. Gonzalez, who is our first Latino in the uh, Texas State Senate in the 1950s. Uh, and went on to become congressman too. Yes, the first uh, Mexican-American congressman from Texas. And then he also mentors Vilma Martinez. When she is 15 or 16, she is working or hanging out in his office. She goes on to receive her degree, I believe from Columbia and then becomes the president of the Mexican-American Legal and Defense Fund and works with the Chicano Rights Project. So all of those key leaders, uh, Albert Pena as well, Albert Pena uh, worked doing good coalition work with the black community in San Antonio, being an anti-war advocate during the Vietnam War, 
being the first uh, Latino on the county commission there. So many of the first that occur in San Antonio are really connected to Perales. You know, I always look at San Antonio as um, the equivalent of uh, to of what Atlanta is to African-Americans, Latino, uh, um, San Antonio is that to the Mexican-American community. I mean- You're correct. I say the same thing. I, I said that after my first visit to Atlanta. Uh, I, again, uh, we did see a rise of a Mexican-American middle-class there in San Antonio. We saw the rise of the LULAC organization and, and many organizations that really were founded there. Uh, uh, there's a major uh, school reform movement uh, that Council 16 of LULAC starts, but which goes on to uh, become its own entity and is responsible for creating more schools and better schools because, of course, the Mexican schools, the segregated Mexican schools that existed were quite inferior and inadequate. Um, so the Southwest Border Registration Project comes out of San Antonio. Uh, we already mentioned all these uh, various leaders, uh, but really you are correct. Uh, Atlanta and San Antonio are the same. You know, uh, that's an idea for you and me. We need to get together and tell that story, right? Uh, right, like I need more work. <laughs> so, you know, what do you think that you know, you're the author of this book. So what do you think that activists, like current professionals, current people who are really devoted to empowerment and impact, what do you think they can learn uh, from reading this book about Alonso Esperales? Well, one of the first things is that Perales took advantage of every single opportunity he had. Okay, so he went and got that white collar skills from this business college. Okay, so obviously education is one of them. Okay, and in addition, he would do whatever he could uh, to continue his learning. He even uh, attended uh, the college classes that were offered by uh, UNAM. You know, that's like a, a college out of Mexico's uh, that came to San Antonio. San Antonio was the only place that had those kinds of courses on Mexican history. And so, UNAM stands for Universidad Automa uh, uh, Nacional, Nacional yeah, yeah. de Mexico. De Mexico. <laughs> yeah, so she's saying UNAM, UNAM. Yeah, yeah so that's the, yeah. that's the major university uh, at, that has several branches out, yes. of, uh, out of Mexico, the country. So yes. I just wanted to okay. tell audience that. Yes, and so he was highly proactive. Uh, he himself would initiate letters to the editor, op-eds. Uh, he would seek out radio opportunities. He would seek out uh, any way that he could make an impact. So he's not passive. He's an assertive man. Uh, and uh, he visited regularly with mayors and politicians uh, advocating for desegregation. Um, yeah, he's, he's a significant man. Um, and, I, and I think uh, the book also is very balanced, meaning that uh, there's chapters on religion, there's chapters on his family, um, there's 
chapters on his work as a diplomat, as a public intellectual, as an attorney. Um, and he, he mastered all of those areas. Uh, so he was multi-issued all the time uh, from having clean yards <laughs> and, and sanitation and fighting tuberculosis uh, to Pan-Americanism. Uh, he also attended the founding of the United Nations in 1945. Uh, he worked as a uh, consul or consulate for Nicaragua. Uh, so his, he's multifaceted, multi-issue. Uh, he cares about everything, including whether poor boys uh, have shoes or clothes. Uh, so it's he's he's at the local to the international or uh, level as well. I'm so glad you um, give a holistic view of Alonso Esperales in your book because a lot of times, in many times, in in some studies we don't get to see the whole person and you study you know him and his religious life his personal life as well as his professional life and so we can learn about all you know the evolution of this person but not only that what you just talked about about being a multifaceted multi-issue individual that you don't have to choose because all of this is interrelated education yes. Uh, educational empowerment, political empowerment, financial empowerment, as well as health and wellness. How 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 are you going to be able to even work for community empowerment if you're sick? And yes. here you have this person addressing all of those issues, and really not only that, what you stated, taking advantage of opportunities to yes. make an impact and to learn continuously be um, being a continuous learner. Um, right. There are so many ways to impact, make an impact. And it seems like he used all the tools at his disposal, at his disposal to empower and impact his community. Yes. Now, the one thing that is problematic, the, 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 one of the main problematics about Perales is that when the LULAC was founded in 1929, it did not include women. And compare this, for example, with the NAACP, mm -hmm. which was uh, biracial, but also included women. Mm -hmm. So black women were empowered mm -hmm. to a greater extent than Mexican American women were empowered in the LULAC organization. You know, uh, separate, separate councils for women that were founded in the early 30s came to an existence, but they remained separate mostly until the 1970s. I'm glad you brought up that point um, because, you know, that goes back to culture. Uh, you know, the African-American community is very different culturally in that respect. Uh, we know that the uh, Mexican-American community, one of the issues is, you know, the machismo that is uh, that is prevalent in the community and the certain roles that women are supposed to have, you know, not that we don't have that in the Black community, we still have our struggles, but there is clearly some cultural dynamics that differ uh, in the community, and it's amazing to see that it took until the 1970s with LULAC being founded in 1929 for uh, that dynamic to change. And yes, re really it's the feminist movement 
uh, that brings that awareness to Chicanas who are questioning why are there separate councils and we too can be uh, full full leaders within the organization. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, we still have challenges in the Black community when it comes to women's leadership, which that's a whole nother conversation that you and I can have. But but um, just speaking, going back to Alonso Esperales and the critique, that that's one of the valid critiques of him um, uh, not being inclusive of women in his, uh, in his leadership. Well, um, tell me uh, for the last question, you know, as an author, what are your aspirations? What, what do you hope to accomplish uh, through this book? Um, well, I'm hoping that uh, the name Alonso Perales can become more of a household name. It's going to take many years to get the word out. Uh, I am happy that uh, the relatively new organization, the Mexican American Civil Rights Institute, which is also in San Antonio, by the way, uh, is rolling out a traveling exhibit about Perales based on the book. Uh, so this will uh, go to malls, it'll go to public schools. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can uh, begin to appreciate the so very important work that LULAC has done uh, over all these years. Uh, LULAC will be celebrating its 100th anniversary in 2029. So the introduction to Perales is also an introduction to LULAC and its significant contributions for 100 years. So Dr. Uh, Orozco, um, tell me uh, where I, I am a big advocate and I know you are a big advocate for a college education. So let's give uh, students some advice what strategies would you um, give students to ensure that they're successful in college? And could you preface that answer with what college or colleges did you attend? What, your, what were your major or majors? And then what uh, degrees did you receive at those institutions? Uh, yes, um, I attended Southwest Texas State University uh, in San Marcos. And my major there was sociology. And then I attended the University of Texas at Austin, where, where my major was history. And then I obtained both my master's and doctorate from UCLA in Los Angeles uh, a while back. Uh, my, one, one of my uh, uh, suggestions or strategies uh, goes, uh, is about finances. Uh, finances is, are actually a very important part of becoming a su successful student. Uh, and my thinking nowadays is that students have to strategize in terms of getting scholarships, in terms of working, in terms of saving, in terms of figuring out ways to not accumulate a massive student debt when they finish. Um, a good way to disempower yourself is to have a massive student debt after you finish college. By all means necessary, avoid a massive student debt. Great advice. It costs 
to get a college education. So you need to be educated before going in there to make sure that you avoid and limit college debt. And as uh, Dr. Cynthia Orozco explained, there are many ways to do this, many strategies to use, apply for scholarships, make sure you uh, get opportunities to work, to make money, and make sure you save money for college. Thank you so much, Dr. Cynthia Orozco. It's great having you on the show. Thanks for having me. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest, 